Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark podcast. Uh, Things seem to be somewhat more orderly uh, at the Kabul airport, uh, but the big question that is looming is whether or not President Biden will extend the August 31st deadline. The Taliban is saying, no, uh, there's no extensions. There is a red line. Uh, But all indications suggest that the the evacuation of, of Americans and our Afghan allies will not uh, be completed by August 31st. So it is uh, one of those big decisions that is hanging fire right now. And to talk about all of this, we are joined by Ambassador Eric Edelman, who is an American diplomat, served as Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, was the ambassador uh, to a number of countries, including Turkey, expert on the Middle East. Uh, first of all, welcome back to the podcast, Ambassador. Charlie, it's great to be with you. It's always great to be with you. Well, this was a disaster foretold because you foretold it. So I guess I wanted to get your your take um, on how did this happen? Uh, earlier this month, you wrote a piece for The Bulwark talking about uh, this as a predicting that uh, the the disaster is imminent to Afghanistan. Uh, the, the judgment the United States should draw down uh, the troops was an arguable proposition when Biden made the call and, and the people could disagree. What What is inexcusable, you wrote, is the failure to foresee and plan for the downstream consequences. And you wrote that in early August. So I, I guess this is the, the this is the question. You know, was this inevitable and what really went wrong? Well, you know, I've been concerned about this, Charlie, um, for a while. Um, in addition to the bulwark piece you mentioned, I wrote one uh, with my former government colleague, uh, Bob Ambassador Bob Joseph, uh, back a few days in the bulwark, a few days after uh, President Biden made the decision, um, saying that this you know could go very badly. And uh, I repeated that in something I wrote in a dispatch in, in early May. And um, I did a conversation with our friend and colleague, um, Bill Crystal in early July, uh, worrying about the lack of urgency and apparent lack of of planning, I think there's going to be a, a lot of efforts, I think, to go back and ascertain exactly what went wrong. I think the biggest thing that went wrong was that we pulled out uh, all of our military support, um, including all the enablers that we have provided for the Afghan military, despite the fact that we basically trained the Afghan military to fight the way we do. Mm-hmm. which is to say to fight with overwhelming information dominance, massive air power, contract logistics to keep aircraft, both rotary and fixed wing in the air and uh, vehicles you know, moving on the roads um, and uh, mission planning capabilities that uh, are unique to the United States. Uh, and then we pulled that all out and then we were surprised that they weren't able to fight. I mean, in some ways, this is uh, a very sad replay of what we did with the uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam back in, in the 1960s and 70s. And I think that was the crucial thing that led to the rapid collapse. So 
you know, one of the the arguments that we hear is that no pullout is going to be successful, that it was going to be messy, whether it happened now or six months ago or six months from now or a year from now, that this was that this was inevitable, that there was no way that we were going to disengage ourselves without something like this happening. So therefore, uh, what you hear from the Biden folks is that some of this criticism is unfair because this was inevitable. This was baked in. I'm guessing you don't buy that. Well, if it was um, inevitable and baked in, you would have thought that maybe they should prepare the American people for that. And maybe they should have moved with a little bit more alacrity to get both American citizens out and the people who helped us out. And obviously they didn't do that because they didn't see this coming. Um, so I, no, I don't think this was inevitable. I think there were ways uh, to get out uh, that would have been different. I mean, of course, there've been a lot of comparisons to the evacuation of Saigon in the spring of 1975. Uh, but one of the things that's striking is that the U.S. had ended its combat role in, in Vietnam in 1973. So there were two years before the, the government fell, and uh, there was much greater degree of uh, preparation. So when Secretary uh, Blinken says this is not Saigon, as he's repeated over and over again, he's he's right. In many ways, this is worse. Um, and the the you look at the numbers of people who they got out in in 1975 compared to what we're seeing now, it, it's you know just apples and oranges in terms of how much better prepared they were in 1975 than we are today. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden inherited a situation from from his predecessors. I mean, you have 20 years of presidents making decisions. So let's can we just look back a little bit uh, on on what what he was what he was handed. I mean, Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo essentially surrendered to the Taliban, uh, you know, forced the government to release 5000 Taliban fighters uh, and set a deadline of May of, of this year. So, you know, where, where do we, you know, draw that the, the moment of, of, of maximum error, I guess, that would lead to this particular moment. Of course, the Biden white house is, is pointing back and saying, look, um, this was already done. This was already over. Uh, if we had wanted to stay in the country and keep the Bagram air base open, that we would have had to surge a large number of additional troops. We weren't willing to do that. So let's just talk about the Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump deal. Did that set the table for what we're seeing now? Of of course it did. And um, I think President Trump and Secretary Pompeo and uh, my former colleague in government, Zal Khalilzad, will have a lot to answer for, um, you know, in the fullness, you know, fullness of time. Um, The agreement uh, not just the agreement, but the manner in which it was negotiated and reached, which was uh, without the participation of the of the Afghan government, which was without a doubt a very flawed, uh, you know, very flawed government in a, in a, a variety of ways. Uh, but it was a government that had uh, at least nominally had some assent of the Afghan people in repeated elections. There were a lot of problems with those elections, but uh, you know, nobody elected the the Taliban. So. Uh, Yes. I mean, they, they cut the ground out from under uh, the government. They signed on to a deal that was supposed to be conditions based and then didn't insist that the Taliban meet the conditions. But where I th- and it's fair, I think, for the Biden people to point all of that out. Uh, it's also the case, by the way, that uh, President Trump, as you'll recall, as he was on his way out the door, was trying to accelerate the uh, withdrawal, which would have been, I think, potentially even more catastrophic. But the Biden people had plenty of opportunity to 
you know, uh, go uh, to go back and review the deal and walk away from it, given the fact that the Taliban were not abiding by it. Now, would that have perhaps required us to move some additional forces into the beyond the 3,500 we already had there? That's perhaps the case. But I don't think it would have required a massive combat presence. We, we haven't been really taking the lead in combat since 2014. And, and one of the, I think, errors uh, going back to 2009 is we've had three consecutive presidents who never made the argument uh, for why we needed to be there uh, in the first place and didn't educate uh, the American public. And there's a lot of, I think, amnesia, selective uh, memory going on, and some young people who are too young to remember what it felt like on September 12, 2001, after uh, we'd suffered the worst attack on the United States since Pearl Harbor. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around uh, in the Bush 43 administration, which I served. We made mistakes as well. Um, but uh, that's different from uh, the way this was carried out. That's a completely different question. No, I mean, people uh, you know, sometimes forget that, that this war was not that controversial compared to Iraq. They had bipartisan support. The Obama administration surged a large number of troops in. Um, and, and this was, this was, this was uh, you know, had, had broad support. And yet, as you point out, the American people and the political class just seemed to have lost interest in it. We, we sort of became bored with the war. And nobody made the case. Nobody talked about it. So when Donald Trump ran for president saying, you know, we need we need to cut, we need to leave. Um, it is it is not worth it. There was not that much resistance. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the the reaction of the U.S. government as as it was apparent that things were falling apart faster. And again, let's go back to your piece from August 4th, early uh, before the, the fall of uh, Kabul. You said the reaction of the U.S. government and the Biden administration seems almost otherworldly. There did seem to be a disconnect uh, as the Biden White House was watching this. A lot of their statements just didn't seem to be connecting with the reality on the ground. What did you mean when you said it was otherworldly? Well, a lot of it was just hortatory injunctions for the you know, uh, Taliban to uh, stop doing what they were doing, which was conquering the country, um, as if you know, these exhortations uh, you know, on their own were going to have any impact. I mean, one of the things I said in the, the piece on August 4th was it wasn't too late to reinsert some U.S. forces to use air power to slow down the um, uh, the Taliban advance. Uh, they seem to think that, th that the Taliban was not going to uh, push all the way for a military uh, military victory. And, and there was just this huge disconnect. And, and that disconnect between what the administration is saying uh, and what's going on on the ground, uh, you know, continues. Uh, it continues to this day. I've been involved in some efforts to try and help get some uh, folks out uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, and the descriptions that the Biden administration and the president of the United States himself have, have given the American people of what the situation is at Ahmed um, Karzai International Airport uh, it are you know, just not you know, completely accurate. And you see that in the, uh, in the press accounts, in the accounts in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington mm -hmm. Post. Uh, from reporters on the ground, as well as uh, from, you know, outlets like CNN, where there was some very good reporting as well about the difficulties of getting getting people through. And I think the sad reality is, as you pointed out, we're we're bumping up against this August 31st deadline 
my my fear is we're going to leave an awful lot of people who helped us behind to be um, uh, slaughtered by the um, by the Taliban. So, so tell me a little bit without giving away any secrets. What what does it involve getting people out? Because we're we're getting these reports that you know how difficult it is to get to the airport, but there are other um, there are other ways of getting out of the country. There have been reports of uh, special operations to extract Americans from from the city and get them to the the airport. Uh, there are charter flights going out. Uh, we hear reports of, uh, of a sort of a digital Dunkirk of other people who are arranging people to get out. Can you give me some sense of what it involves to get somebody out right now as, as we're speaking? Well, they're just a variety of different people. And for every um, category of person, there are sort of different potential options. So in the first instance, they're American citizens, uh, U.S. passport holders or, um, or green card holders. They're in one category. Uh, then there are the so-called SIVs. These are the special immigrant visa applicants, people who were interpreters or uh, worked for the U.S. Embassy or for other U.S. government agencies. Uh, and then there are others who you know, have a, uh, you know, a, a fear of a legitimate fear of uh, persecution by the Taliban, who are uh, so-called priority two P two uh, candidates. But you know they're sort of very much at the you know back of the line, at least formally. Um, and, you know, there are different lists, uh, the State Department, Defense Department have different lists of people. I think a lot of the trouble people are having is, first of all, the physical crush of people at the gates uh, of the uh, HKIA, the airport, trying to get through physically is a problem. Um, and then there's the question of uh, having the right paperwork and then having that paperwork actually acknowledged by the people on the other side of the gate. You've got Taliban checkpoints to to get through. You've seen all the reports, uh, I'm sure, Charlie, of people being uh, either uh, turned away by the Taliban or beaten or whipped by the Taliban. So it's it's uh, it's very perilous. There have been some uh, periods of time over the last uh, week or so since Kabul fell. Uh, I guess we're nine days uh, away from that now. Of uh, the embassy telling people don't come to the airport right now. The airport's been shut down for you know hours at a time. Uh, with no flights uh, leaving. And then there's the problem of what happens to these folks, um, you know, when they, when they get out of, uh, of Afghanistan. So the reports coming out of Doha, uh, Al-Udaid Airport, uh, where a lot of uh, folks have been evacuated to, is just heartrending uh, to read. Axios has some reporting this morning mm-hmm. about uh, conditions, just uh, humanitarian catastrophe with uh, some 10,000 people, I think, uh, there in a in an airport hangar that's not equipped or hasn't, at least to this point, been equipped uh, to handle uh, that that kind of um, crowd of people. So we're we're getting these reports of the daily negotiations and conversations between the Americans and the, the the Taliban. I'm trying to imagine what those negotiations might be like. I'm sure you have, as a veteran ambassador, as a veteran diplomat, uh, trying to imagine what those conversations were like. And we find out this morning that the uh, CIA director had traveled to Afghanistan and apparently met with the the Taliban. And I guess give me your sense of how delicate this dance is because so far no Americans have been killed. We clearly are relying at least to some extent on the restraint of the Taliban to keep this going. So it's just give me your, 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 your thoughts about 
at this point, relying upon and in some ways trusting that the Taliban will live up to some sort of an agreement to keep this process going for the next few days? Well, it's a sad commentary on this entire matter that, you know, we now find ourselves as supplicants uh, to the Taliban um, to uh, allow this to go forward. I don't believe that the administration has used all of the um, uh, all of the uh, leverage that it has in this situation. Um, there are, you know, several uh, things that we do have as leverage. I do think they're using the financial leverage, which right now is the most important. Uh, let me just back up for one second, yeah. if I could, Charlie. I think, you know, the longer this went, uh, the more our leverage would decline and the Taliban's would increase. That's, you know, that's a fact. Uh, Bill Burns, who they've sent, is a former colleague of mine, a friend. He's extremely capable, um, very experienced, probably the most experienced person in the in the administration uh, in dealing with this kind of circumstance or situation, although nobody really has a lot of experience in anything like this. Um, but Bill is a, a good person to have there. There are some downsides, by the way, to having the CIA director taking on this kind of emissary role. Uh, but in this kind of extreme situation, I suspect there's not much uh, alternative. So there is a certain amount of uh, financial uh, and diplomatic leverage. Uh, the administration has talked up the diplomatic leverage, although that, I think, is the weakest read on which to rely. Uh, that's the uh, supposition that the Taliban, this go-round, wants to not be a pariah state, wants international recognition, and therefore you can somehow leverage their desire for that into uh, you know, better behavior. Uh, you see some, you know, there's some, it's not completely delusional to think that. I mean, uh, you do see evidence that the Taliban is trying to put a human face on, on its rule. But while I wouldn't say it's totally delusional, it's, as I said, the weakest read on which, you know, on which to rely. Um, the financial um, tool is significant and they have frozen all the Taliban's assets uh, uh, the U.S. government has uh, that are held in in the uh, in U.S. in the Federal Reserve. That's important because it's uh, the the Afghan economy is in danger of just completely seizing up uh, in the absence of uh, access to dollars, and uh, that's a pretty serious you know piece of uh, leverage. But there's also military leverage if the United States were willing to use it. And I I think the problem is that the president has completely under you know, undercut that. And the leverage there is this. The Taliban clearly want the United States to leave. Um, I think the president's been very foolish to set these arbitrary deadlines that he has set, you know, September 11th, August 31st, et cetera. Um, there'll be some very grim um, uh, celebrations of uh, September 11th uh, mm -hmm. in, in uh, Kabul this year, I'm afraid. Uh, and it's going to certainly cast a pall over the commemoration of the date here in the United States. Um, but the, uh, the the point is, they want us out. And, uh, you know, I think General McKenzie, the commander of CENTCOM, Bill Burns, Admiral Will, uh, uh, Ambassador Ross Wilson, whom I also know well, he was my successor in Turkey, uh, who was there on the ground, Admiral Vasily, uh, former Navy SEAL, who is the commander on the ground. I think they could be telling the Taliban, look, you know, uh, a week ago we had 600 people here. Now we've got 7,000. Uh, if, if you, you know, cooperate with us, we will finish our work and we will be gone. 
uh, let us secure the routes and the roads and the entry points so that we can process people. You have said you want to declare an amnesty and you're not going to hold anything against anybody. Good. This is the time to prove it. You know, let let all these people who we want to get out out. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you obstruct us, you know, we could have another 7,000 people here easily. Um, the Taliban do not uh, want to fight us right now. They really don't. Um, they know the formidable military capability we can bring to bear. Uh, but I'm afraid that, you know, the president's statements um, have sort of undercut the ability to make those kinds of threats. And of course, you shouldn't make those threats unless you're willing to follow through. In the worst case scenario, and I'm guessing the the, the fear in the White House is of, of of a hostage situation, which we haven't seen so far, something like the Iran hostage situation, or really worst case scenario, if the Taliban um, starts shooting at the airplanes or trying to shoot them down. Um, as, as you point out, that wouldn't be in their interest, but you can certainly imagine uh, some sort of a retaliation if, in fact, the president says we're going to stay longer without without a deal. Is, is that the kind of fear that they have? that right now everything's sort of in delicate balance and it may be messy, but it's happening. But if they push too far, so in some ways they're self-deterring themselves. They're, 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 they're not willing to, to flex those muscles at this point because they're afraid of what, of how vulnerable they are uh, to the Taliban or some of the offshoots of the Taliban. Not to mention the fact that it's not totally clear that the Taliban uh, has control of all of its, uh, of all of its factions and, and fighters. All of the above, Charlie. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think that's, uh, they're very worried about that. They're worried about U.S. casualties, first and foremost. I mean, it seems pretty clear that when the president gave his direction to the Pentagon uh, back in April uh, to organize the withdrawal, that he didn't want any casualties, um, you know, uh, when we withdrew. And it's one of the reasons why you keep hearing this mantra out of the Pentagon, which is speed is safety. They pulled everyone out very rapidly. Uh, well ahead of the deadline, um, and walked out of Bagram Air Force Base essentially like thieves in the night without even telling the uh, local Afghan um, uh, National Security Forces commander um, or having a, any kind of reasonable uh, handoff. Um, and, you know, we're, we're paying a price, a price for that now. But I think there's enormous casualty sensitivity uh, in the Pentagon and, and um, in the White House. I'm not suggesting we should be cavalier about um, the potential for casualties. It's very real here. Everything you outlined is is a potential outcome. I think had they uh, been tougher earlier with the um, with the Taliban before the Taliban was able to completely flow into the city and and establish itself, as I said, they would have had more leverage with every passing day as the Taliban's position becomes stronger, it becomes harder and harder to exercise any military leverage. So you know the the the, the comeback that uh, the, that we're getting is well what what's what was the alternative you know are you arguing for a forever war were we always going to stay there was there no exit so what was the alternative staying there for another twenty years we still have forces in Germany uh, we still have forces in the Republic of Korea um, you know uh, seventy years uh, after the uh, you know the Korean War broke out. Um, I think, uh, we, we did not have to have a combat presence in Afghanistan, but I think we did have to have some kind of small train and equip presence, uh, that helped enable the Afghan uh, military, 
to hold its own in the hope that over time um, we could get a more capable Afghan government uh, and be able to maintain a stalemate. A stalemate uh, with the Taliban was actually uh, to our advantage because it would prevent the country from becoming once again a potential base for, you know, for jihadism. And one of the rationales that the administration has used uh, for liquidating our presence there and getting out was that we need to uh, repurpose all and reallocate all these assets towards the strategic competition mm-hmm. with China, which is the the most important long-term strategic challenge to the United States. I agree with that the latter uh, statement that you know, China represents the most strategic long-term challenge to the United States. But I think because of the way we've done this now, the result is going to be that um, we're going to have to devote more assets to combating terrorism than we had anticipated, because there's a very real chance that um, the, uh, Al-Qaeda will be able to reestablish itself. Um, and uh we have also, I'm afraid, uh, reduced our deterrent posture vis-a-vis China. You already see in Global Times, which is a English language PRC news outlet, editorial saying, oh, all you people in Hong Kong, you think the Americans are going to stick with you mm. any, any more than they did with the Afghans? Or how about all you uh, Taiwanese, you think the Americans are going to stick with you more? Now, these situations are very different. I'm not trying to compare them. I'm just saying uh, there may be a sense in in Beijing that uh, the United States is is in retreat and um, you know might not be as willing uh, to say defend Taiwan as you know we uh, have appeared to be over the years. Well, you 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 made this point uh, earlier this month in your bulwark piece. You said, "What will the allies and partners we need to confront an aggressive China, India, Vietnam, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and others?" think when they see how the United States has treated Afghanistan, another neighbor of China's, the reputational damage, you wrote, to the United States will be excruciating. And uh, that, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very real price, isn't it? Uh, yes. And I don't think it's an accident, comrade, as I might have said in an earlier mm-hmm. phase of my career, um, that um, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, is in Southeast Asia right now uh, trying to uh, shore up our, our position uh, there by asserting that the U.S. remains, you know, a, a global leader. Now, it's, of course, you know, uh, she's going to be facing a lot of skeptical audiences, I think, in, I think because the, um, the narrative that uh, is out there is that the U.S. is in retreat and was, is withdrawing from the world and that the president's tone, particularly in his early, um, early remarks and interviews on this subject last week, I think had the flavor, as many commentators said, of America First Light, uh, or as my uh, my colleague Elliot Cohn at, at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies said, uh, the Trump administration with better manners. So you, you, you had referred to this. This is one of the big tests, of course, is whether or not um, this will lead to a reconstitution of al-Qaeda. And of course, the, the Biden administration is arguing that uh, that that they'll maintain this counterterrorism overwatch from beyond Afghanistan's borders, that they'll be able to do it from, you know, someplace else. So give me your sense. Uh, I know you have been concerned about the, the terrorist future of Afghanistan. What is the danger 
that that ISIS, uh, that Al Qaeda, that other offshoots of these terrorist organizations will reconstitute and use Afghanistan as a base? Well, there's a very real danger, uh, and part of the problem is because we have lost any access to Afghanistan effectively once we are out of um, Kabul, uh, we will have much less ability to track that. That you know, Bill Burns testified to that effect uh, earlier this spring. He said it's just a fact that you know once we're out, we're going to lose you know eyes and ears on the ground, and we're going to have much tougher time assessing this. Um, the um, uh, Afghanistan Study Group, a, um, a bipartisan group chartered by Congress to review this, whose recommendations were completely ignored by the Biden administration, uh, expressed concern that Al Qaeda could uh, reconstitute itself. You know, uh, you know, eighteen months to two years after U.S. withdrawal. Mm. Um, of course, they also, you know, believed, or, you know, suggested that you know the government would last longer based on the same kinds of intelligence assessments that the administration has cited to say they thought they had more time. Um, but now in the face of what's happened, we have to, um, we have to uh, assume that it could happen more quickly, just as the collapse happened more quickly than a lot of people anticipated. It's a very complex picture with regard to terrorism. I don't want to suggest that it's simple. Uh, there, there are some reasons why some elements of the Taliban regime may not want to go back to having Al Qaeda as a, as a, uh, you know, a, a sort of pilot fish in in uh, in, Af- in Afghanistan with bases and training camps, etc. Uh, but the Taliban and the and Al Qaeda are linked by, among other things, intermarriage. So it's going to be uh, harder to sort of extirpate the um, Al Qaeda. Um, presence than people uh, might think in the administration. It's also the case that the Taliban and ISIS are at um, at loggerheads, which mm-hmm. may be helpful here. One of the first things the Taliban did was pull uh, an ISIS guy out of jail and summarily execute him um, when they took over uh, in hmm. uh, in Afghanistan. So um, it, it's a complex picture, but it is very worrisome given what happened on 9-11, and we're kind of back where we were uh, pre 9-11 in terms of our ability to understand what's going on on the ground in Afghanistan, or we will be shortly. And we're not going to have access to a lot of the bases in Central Asia that we used uh, initially in the uh, Afghan operation and for some number of years uh, in Uzbekistan and in Kyrgyzstan because of the fact that the um, you know President Putin has enormous mm-hmm. sway and influence there. He doesn't want us there. Uh, he's made that clear. He apparently told President Biden that at their summit. Um, so we're going to be at some remove, um, and it's going to complicate uh, everything in terms of terrorist overwatch, and it, it's going to be more costly as well. Well, I want to talk about uh, the, also the implications of uh, the flow of refugees, both in this country and in in the region and in Europe. So let's talk about this right after this. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters, to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. We're back with Ambassador Eric Edelman. Um, 
so let's talk about the refugee issue because there's 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 several different elements of this, and this is also very very complex. Um, you know, one question, of course, is how many refugees will end up in the United States? Uh, there seems to be a huge bipartisan consensus that we ought to welcome the Afghan allies, the the the, the military translators who fought with our troops. I think there's something like 81 percent of Americans had no problem with that. But uh, domestic politics being what they are, uh, we're already seeing uh, some folks on the right playing the refugee card, uh, playing the, the the card of how scary uh, Afghans would be. And wanted to get you to respond to this. J.D. Vance, and I know we've mentioned him before, running for the United States Senate in Ohio, has really been doubling and tripling down in saying that we shouldn't even be talking about refugees until all Americans are out. And then in case there was any ambiguity about whether or not he was going to fearmonger on this issue, he went on Tucker Carlson's show last night. And this is what J.D. Vance said about Afghan refugees last night. And just think about these ridiculous politicians. Unfortunately, too many Republicans who say things like, well, we want all of these Afghan refugees in our neighborhood. I mean, who really believes that? You cited the Pew Research poll. Another finding from that poll suggests that 40 percent of Afghan refugees, excuse me, 40 percent of Afghans believe that suicide bombing is a reasonable way to solve a problem. Who wants people like that in their community? Of course, 60 percent of Afghans don't believe that. But when you're not vetting people properly, you're going to get a lot of bad people in your communities. So let's just be honest about the fact that if we want to have a real country, we need to make sure that good people are coming into this country. There are ways to help the Afghans who really did help our military without sending tens of thousands of unvetted people into our country. And the fact that our politicians aren't honest about that trade-off suggests they're either hiding something or they're just stupid. Either way, it's not very good. Hmm. So, Ambassador, um, suicide bombers coming to a neighborhood near you. Charlie, those sentiments are repulsive. And uh, to use a phrase I used uh, with regard to some senior officials in the Biden administration, who equated the government um, with the Taliban as, you know, just another party in a civil war, and why should Americans die for that? I, I described those sentiments as morally repugnant, mm-hmm. and, and what you just heard, you know, falls into the same category. First of all, no one's bringing anybody in who's unvetted. Uh, all of these people have been enormously vetted. One of the reasons why the backlog of special immigrant visas is so long uh, is because of the of the vetting uh, process. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it, one doesn't even, you know, know how to respond to something like that because the, these are people who fought, bled and died with us. Uh, and, you know, people like Adam Kinzinger and, uh, Congressman Jason Crow and others, uh, who've been in the fight and understand that, uh, have rightly been, uh, you know, critical of these kinds of comments. No, and, and very eloquent about it. But this, the, the refugees are not just coming to this country, um, as you as you pointed out. Uh, where you know early in the month we were you know seeing uh, you know Afghans trickling into Central Asia, um, and you pointed out you know the neighbors of Afghanistan like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan are among the least free countries in the world. And uh, it says something about the desperation of the Afghans that they would flee there. But you point out that if this trickle turns into a flood, as it did from Syria and Libya, um, it's going to be a challenge for the administration. We're already seeing uh, the Turks pushing back very, very aggressively against Afghan refugees. And there is a potential, isn't there, 
that um, a, a massive flood of refugees might destabilize European politics and uh, also neighboring Pakistan's politics? I, I've been worried about this and raising this issue uh, since uh, the middle of April when uh, Ambassador Joseph and I had our piece in the bulwark where we raised precisely this problem with regard to Pakistan. People uh, have forgotten, I believe, that uh, before the civil war in Syria created uh, the largest refugee population in the world of both uh, external refugees and internally displaced people, uh, the largest refugee population in the world was uh, Afghans who had uh, fled the fighting uh, first uh, that uh, attended the Soviet invasion and the um, long uh, Soviet-Afghan war uh, from 1979 to 1989, uh, and then the rule of the Taliban. Um, so there are already uh, several million Afghans who remain in Pakistan, uh, but I think you're likely to see you know, more flowing um, you know, into Pakistan, which has its own uh, hmm. you know, violent Muslim extremist problem. There are Pakistani Taliban who are now uh, pledging allegiance to the Afghan Taliban. I mean, one of the uh, ironies here is that uh, Pakistan and its integrated services intelligence, the uh, famous ISI, who for years have played a double game with the United States, supporting uh, elements of the Taliban while at the same time being a allegedly uh, a major non-NATO ally of the United States, um, you know, they, they may end up, uh, you know, ruining uh, what what they have wrought. Mm. And um, there's major, uh, I think, challenges. Pakistan is a perpetually fragile or failing state, but it also sits on top of a large growing nuclear arsenal uh, and the potential for uh, those weapons to uh, become uh, available uh, to extremists uh, is not negligible, and it's, it's something terrifying. That, it is terrifying, and it's something that I'm, I sh I hope that the administration is taking very very seriously, uh, and planning uh, for every contingency uh, as best they can. Of course, that's not something they can or should talk about publicly, uh, but it will also be harder. I think it's fair to to observe it will be harder uh, not having any U.S. forces next door in Afghanistan who might have responded uh, in a pinch to. Um, the, uh, to lock down uh, loose nuclear weapons if they um, actually, you know, break free. You 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 mentioned in passing um, NATO, and it's it's worth reminding people that uh, we are not we were not alone in Afghanistan. That there are NATO allies who, uh, based on the reports that I'm seeing, were caught very much flat footed by um, the the pace of the withdrawal and the collapse of Afghanistan. One of the big selling points of the Biden administration was that America is back, that we were going to um, repair our relationship with our NATO allies. And President Biden has said that he's not hearing anybody who's questioning America's leadership. Uh, that also doesn't seem to accord with other accounts. So give me your sense of of how this affects our relationship with our NATO allies who are also, and, and who still remain on the ground. I mean, the French and the Germans are still there. Um, others are still there. I think the British are still there as well, at least some of, some of their troops. How, how, how has this affected our standing? How much damage has it done? The damage is enormous. And enormous. Uh, I think the fact that the president said what he said the other day was maybe one of the most troubling things I've heard him say, because it suggests he's not reading 
what is evident to anybody in the Financial Times, The Economist, um, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times are all reporting uh, major concerns among allies about the United States. He was very slow, even after Kabul fell, to consult uh, with our closest allies. It took several days before he spoke to Boris Johnson on the phone and Angela Merkel and then President Macron. So uh, I, I'm very concerned about this. I think you know, s- selling the proposition that America is back um, and that we are going to rely on diplomacy is going to be a very, very hard sell. I don't envy the task that uh, Secretary Blinken has in front of him in trying to do that. Uh, Secretary Blinken had actually participated in a, in a NATO meeting that morning virtually uh, where many of these concerns were raised. So the president was either being disingenuous or he's really, really disconnected uh, from, you know, from the realities uh, on the ground. And, and uh, th- there's been you know, a fair amount of damage here uh, to our standing in NATO. I would commend to everybody a speech by Tom Tugendhat, mm-hmm. uh, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the British House of Commons. This is amazing. Um, and uh, I, I know, you know, uh, uh, Tom Tugendhat, and, you know, there is no more pro-American a politician in Britain than, than he. Um, and yet his speech about what we did was absolutely searing, um, as was the you know, statements, uh, statement issued by uh, former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Well, t- Tony Blair didn't mince any words. What was what was the the language he used? He used some, um, what did he say, it was imbecilic? He, he said that the, the uh, withdrawal was carried out in a way that, um, you know, essentially paid obeisance to what he called the imbecilic political slogan <laughs> of, of ending forever wars. Oh, my. Well, he, no, oh, totally. <laughs> The, the the Pentagon is now saying that evacuation planes are taking off from Kabul every 45 minutes now. Um, the White House is touting uh, how many uh, uh, people were evacuated in the last 24 hours, which is all very positive. And it does seem to th- seem that they are picking up the pace. Of course, we know what the numerator is. We don't know what the denominator is. In other words, right. um, you could say we've gotten 60,000 people out. Well, that's fine. But how many people, uh, you know, what, what is the what is the scope of the problem? Is 60,000 80% or is it 30% or is it 20%? And we don't have a good picture of that at the moment, do we? Precisely. No, and, and that's one of the difficulties of parsing the statements they've made. I mean, it's also not clear from the numbers they're given how many of these people are American citizens, how many are green card, how many fall into the various categories I mentioned earlier of folks uh, who we have, you know, uh, trying to, to get out. So it's, uh, it, it's, uh, obviously, more is better, um, and being able to take off is is good. But there, there's still a lot, you know. Again, that that hasn't been attended to. As I mentioned, it's it's also the question of what happens at the other end when these flights land. Right. Where where are they going? What's happening to the people? How are they being processed? Is the International Red Cross uh, been alerted? Are they there to receive these people? How, you know, it's there's still uh, a very kind of haphazard. Uh, you know, quality to all this, which I think, um, you know, uh, belies, uh, you know, all of the um, efforts to spin uh, the PR of this into that, you know, they were uh, prepared and they had done all the contingency planning that they needed to do. Clearly, they did not. And I, I, I do think that the, you know, U.S. military folks on the ground 
uh, and the State Department folks on the ground are all doing their level best. You know, I am confident, uh, you know, to get this right. But they're dealing with an intrinsically chaotic um, and uh, unpredictable and very difficult situation. Well, here are the numbers as of right now while you and I are speaking, because the Department of Defense just released its updated numbers, about 21,000, 21,600 uh, evacuated by the U.S. and coalition forces over the past 24 hours, 21,000, which was way above what they were saying they could do in 24 hours. Since August 14th, 58,700 evacuated. Uh, since the end of July, uh, sixty-three, nearly 64,000 evacuated by the U.S. These, these are big numbers, indicating that it is a very, very impressive operation. We Again, we don't know, you know how many people are going to be left behind. You know, on, on a more positive note, if in fact there is this massive Dunkirk-like uh, operation, you know, might this take some of the edge off of the original debacle? Might we look back on this with a certain amount of, I don't know, I mean, pride seems way too strong a word, but is is, is is it possible that we could turn this around if we keep those numbers? I mean, 21,000 people every 24 hours would indicate that we are making a significant dent or is, or, or, or am I grasping for straws of optimism? Well, I, I, I hope that's right. Uh, you know, I, I would hope that we're able to get everybody out and we look back and say, wow, you know, this was a Dunkirk moment and we did everything we we, could. we rescued uh, as met, you know, everybody we possibly could. And, and, you know, the very few people were as a result, you know, uh, lost their lives and um, you know, as a result of this. But um, I, I and I think that's sort of what the administration is hoping for in the best possible case from their point of view. Uh, they keep pointing out that, you know, the American public supports their decision to uh, withdraw from Afghanistan. But I do think it's very much a function of how you ask the question. Yeah. Um, and there's plenty of poll data that shows that uh, President Biden has taken a hit here. And I think in the end of the day, you know, a year from now in 2022 and uh, three years from now in a 24 election, um, you know, people may not hold it against President Biden if he decided to get out of Afghanistan, but the damage to uh, the perception of the president's competence and the yeah. administration's competence, I think, will be indelible. And and credibility. And, and, and I think the most surprising thing was, with Lisa's initial comments, for a president who's famous for his empathy, that he didn't seem that empathetic. So, I mean, there, there were there, there was you know, a competence gap, a moral gap, a, a credibility gap, and maybe an empathy gap. And, I, you know, all of those, I think, are going to be, well, he's going to have to find a way to fix that. Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Eric Edelman is counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Thanks for coming back on the on, on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Charlie. And uh, I expect we're going to be talking about this again in the future, probably so. I think that's certain. I think that's a date. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.